0: From Boomers to Millennials is a modern U.S. history podcast, providing a fresh look at the historic events that shaped current generations from 1946 to the present. Welcome to 1956, a.k.a. Episode 11, Trouble in the Promised Land. This is the debut episode of our podcast's second season. Thank you for your patience over these past few months during our hiatus between seasons. Unfortunately, I had this episode recorded and almost ready to upload last week, pending a few final edits. Then my laptop crashed, and I had to take it into the shop. Uh, 2020 people, right? I recently learned that the hard drive could not be recovered, so I am recording this episode on a borrowed computer with a different audio editing program than usual. I'm sorry to bore you with these details of our technical difficulties, but I just needed to explain why the production is going to sound a little different this time. Now, back to our show. This week's episode covers one of the more turbulent years of the Eisenhower era, during which Americans faced unrest both within and outside of U.S. borders. In our last full-length episode, set in 1955, we concluded with the story of the racially motivated killing of black teenager Emmett Till in the state of Mississippi. Till's killers were acquitted by an all-white jury in September 55. Historian James T. Patterson notes that this hate crime was just an extreme example of a much larger pattern of racial violence. Throughout the mid-to-late 1950s, Southern whites were shocked and angered by a growing trend of federal moves toward racial integration— Including the desegregation of the military and the Brown v. Board school integration court decision. White segregationists erupted in violent backlash with the goal of preserving the Jim Crow system. Patterson writes, quote, intimidation employed by Southern whites, while harshest in Mississippi, broke out all over the South in 1955 and 56. In 1956, a young black woman named Arthurine Lucy attempted to enroll in the University of Alabama, but she was chased away by angry white students, and she was then expelled by the university's segregationist administrators, who used the excuse that they could not handle the burden of guaranteeing her safety. This incident foreshadowed the more famous controversy involving a black student named James Meredith's admission to the University of Mississippi, that took place in 1962. In this latter case, federal intervention from the Kennedy administration would be necessary to secure Meredith's admission to classes and to protect him from white rioters. Such was the power of massive white resistance to integration in the mid-20th century South. Some of the racial violence was spontaneous, but other acts were organized by vigilante groups determined to maintain the Southern white supremacist status quo. The most infamous of these was the Ku Klux Klan, an organization with roots that stretched back to the immediate aftermath of the U.S. Civil War. In order to understand the violent backlash to desegregation during the 1950s, it helps to understand the long history of Klan activity in the postbellum American South. In 1866, Former Confederate General Nathan Bedford Forrest helped organize the original Ku Klux Klan, a white supremacist guerrilla organization that engaged in violent acts against both blacks freed from slavery and also white northerners, especially Union troops then occupying the South. By the time of the contested 1876 presidential election, political enthusiasm for Southern Reconstruction had waned in the North and the GOP agreed to dramatically scale back the federal military presence in the South in exchange for Southerners' acceptance of Republican Rutherford B. Hayes as president. Freed from Northern supervision, white Southerners during the final quarter of the 19th century used violence and intimidation to regain political control of the South. They passed Jim Crow laws that stripped blacks of their legal rights, including access to the vote. With white supremacy again secure in the South, the Ku Klux Klan declined and fell into inactivity by the dawn of the 20th century. Then, in 1915, a filmmaker named D.W. Griffith released The Birth of a Nation. Its pioneering cinematography made this movie an influential milestone for American cinema, but its politics were rather, shall we say, problematic. Griffith was the son of a Confederate war veteran, and he based his film on a novel called The Klansman, a racist account of the Civil War's aftermath written by a Southern minister named Thomas Dixon. This highly inaccurate account portrayed the Reconstruction era as a time when politically empowered blacks oppressed whites and governed incompetently. It portrayed the Ku Klux Klansmen as heroes who liberated the white South from black domination. Civil rights groups condemned the film upon its release, but the birth of a nation nevertheless became very influential in rehabilitating the Klan's public image. Inspired by the film, a Georgia man began selling memberships in a revived version of the Klan. By the 1920s, his second version of the Klan was enjoying huge growth in its membership, with chapters spreading beyond the South in all directions into the Midwest, Northeast, and West Coast. According to historian Stanley Coben's book about the 20s, the KKK reached 3 million members by drawing upon the strength of small-town white Protestant opposition to social and demographic changes during the so-called Jazz Age. Many areas of the Northeast and Midwest had few black residents, so Ku Klux Klan leaders there focused their hatred and intimidation upon new immigrant groups, especially Catholics and Jews, styling themselves as defenders of the traditional native-born population. Coben reports that Klan membership peaked in the mid-20s and then collapsed after newspaper reports revealed scandalous personal behavior and political corruption among the Klan's national leaders which damaged their claims to be defending traditional Protestant Christian morality. During the 50s, the southern states were experiencing another revival of the Ku Klux Klan, growing out of backlash to the rising civil rights movement. In his book Grand Expectations, historian James T. Patterson contends that, As in the past, 1950s Klansmen incited violent intimidation and terror Including night riding, cross burning, and mob assaults. Close quote. The shock troops of the Klan were mostly derived from quote, the lower classes of white society. However, Patterson notes that wealthier white citizens played their own role in fighting for segregation during the 50s. Quote, Thousands of more respectable people, including bankers, lawyers, and businessmen, "...openly identified with organizations such as the White Citizens' Councils, which stood for the perpetuation of Jim Crow. They repeatedly denounced the Supreme Court, liberals, and Northerners." Close quote. Indeed, the backlash against integration was championed by powerful white Southern senators. In March 1956, 19 out of the 22 senators representing former Confederate states signed a document known as the Southern Manifesto, which condemned the U.S. Supreme Court's decision in Brown v. Board of Education as wrong and unconstitutional. Patterson writes that, the only Southern senators who did not sign the manifesto were Estes Kefauver and Albert Gore Sr. of Tennessee and Lyndon Johnson of Texas. All three were relatively liberal Democrats who cherished hopes of one day running for president, and therefore needed to avoid alienating Northern liberals. Quote. However, African Americans in the South weren't about to let this opposition stop the momentum of the civil rights movement. They had become well organized, thanks in part to the post World War II boom in NAACP membership. See Episode 1. Having only each other, with the entire political system stacked against them, Southern blacks developed strong community ties of mutual aid, especially through local church congregations. A prime example of racial and political solidarity was about to be demonstrated in the medium-sized southern city of Montgomery, which was the state capital of Alabama. Montgomery was almost evenly divided demographically between blacks and whites. Historian James T. Patterson writes, that the city segregated, quote, "...virtually all public accommodations, barring most blacks from voting and limiting them mainly to menial work." Patterson finds that the average African-American household in Montgomery made approximately half the median annual income that whites enjoyed in the city. Quote, "...roughly 90% of white homes had flush toilets compared to 30% of black homes." Because few black people had cars, they had to use buses to get around, close quote. But even riding the city bus could be a harrowing and humiliating experience for black residents. Montgomery City bus drivers were uniformly white, and the majority of passengers who were African American were required to, quote, pay at the front of the bus, enter toward the back, and sit in the rear rows of the vehicle, close quote. A 45-year-old seamstress named Rosa Parks was a seemingly unlikely figure who initiated a powerful challenge to this system. Parks was a quiet and bespectacled church-going woman well-respected within Montgomery's black community. However, she had a strong will to confront and defy injustice that belied her mild-mannered appearance. Her history of involvement with civil rights activism dated back at least to the 1930s. According to historian Michael Honey, Parks attended civil rights workshops at the Highlander Folk School, a controversial left wing academy in West Virginia funded by labor unions. During the 1940s, she had once before been kicked off a city bus for refusing to follow the driver's orders. After World War II, she became branch secretary of the local NAACP chapter in Montgomery. On December 1st, 1955, Parks was returning home after a long day of work, followed by the often aggravating process of Christmas shopping. She got on a city bus and sat in a middle row, which blacks were allowed to do. Black riders were expected, however, to move back if white people got on the bus who might need those middle rows. On that famous night, the driver yelled at her and other black passengers to move back. Others did, but she adamantly refused, and the driver eventually responded by contacting the police, who arrested Parks. There are some myths surrounding the famous Rosa Parks arrest. The most familiar of these is that Parks was just a non-political, mild-mannered old woman who on that famous day was just too tired to move to the back of the bus. As we explained, she was actually a middle-aged woman with a clear track record of political activism and defiance of racist practices. There is now a counter-myth that overcorrects the original legend, portraying the entire incident as premeditated by the NAACP as a way to foment a legal and political challenge to the local Jim Crow system. According to Park's biographer, Professor Jean Theo Harris. Parks and other members of the Montgomery NAACP were well aware of the recent Supreme Court rulings finding types of segregation unconstitutional, and they were interested in building a movement to challenge the system. However, they had not specifically designated Parks to sit at the front of the bus and get arrested on that fateful day. The defiance of Parks had been a combination of spontaneous outrage and political opportunism. She had been insulted by this particularly patronizing driver's treatment of black riders in the moment, but she also knew that this time, if she were arrested, she might have more success in challenging the premise of her arrest than she'd had in the previous bus incident a decade earlier. The NAACP and other leaders of the local black community rallied around Rosa Parks' arrest for violating a discriminatory law. They planned a protest of bus policies by organizing a boycott of Montgomery City buses, which were run by a private company contracted to provide the city's public transit service. According to Patterson, black leaders told the bus company that they would only end the boycott if it agreed to certain demands, including the hiring of some black drivers and the adoption of policies to provide more courteous treatment to black passengers. Patterson notes that a boycott, quote, could be undertaken by blacks who acted by not acting and who thereby risked relatively little compared to the brazen business of trying to vote in the way of individualized reprisals, close quote. He describes black churches as important institutions to this and most other civil rights actions, quote, churches in the South provided virtually the only places. Where large numbers of black people could safely meet. Quote. One religious leader, in particular, would make a national name for himself as a leader of the Montgomery boycott. This figure was the pastor of the Dexter Avenue Baptist Church, a 26-year-old from Atlanta named Martin Luther King Jr. Patterson writes that King was, quote, well educated, especially for a black man in the 50s. He had done graduate work in theology and went on to earn a Ph.D. from Boston University in Massachusetts. He moved back to the South after getting a position as a Baptist minister in the capital of Alabama. After the Parks arrest, King was elected to lead the Montgomery Improvement Association, an organization that had been formed to coordinate the boycott efforts. Patterson writes that his public identification with the boycott led King to be arrested, along with 100 others, for conspiring to lead a quote-unquote illegal boycott. However, King and his fellow activists were soon released, and the black citizens of Montgomery maintained the boycott with dogged determination. Participants with cars organized a carpool so that many African Americans in the city could get to work without riding on the buses. Others got up extra early in the morning and walked all the way to work. Patterson reports that, as a result of these actions, ridership declined, quote, by an estimated 65% and bus company revenues plunged, close quote. The city still refused to give in to the boycotters' demands, but nevertheless, showing incredible fortitude, Montgomery's black community kept the boycott going month after month after month. Almost a full year had passed by the time the U.S. Supreme Court ruled on November 13, 1956, that the city's bus segregation laws were unconstitutional. After the nation's highest court issued that decision, the bus company begrudgingly agreed to stop enforcing segregated seating. The black community ended its boycott in response, and in December, quote, 381 days after the boycott had started, Martin Luther King sat down with a white man At the front of the bus. Although it had required outside intervention from the Supreme Court to resolve, in Patterson's words, the boycott nevertheless proved that black people could come together, persevere, and suffer at great length in order to establish their dignity, and it remained an inspiring example for activists in the years to come. In the years immediately after the bus boycott, King organized the Southern Christian Leadership Conference, or SCLC, that would serve as a home base for the upcoming civil rights protests of the early 1960s. There is one other thread from the Montgomery Bus Boycott story that we need to wrap up in today's episode before we move on to the various other events of 1956. That thread is the life of Rosa Parks, who faded into the background of the struggle after her arrest, probably in part because in the culturally traditional American South of the 1950s, a movement had to be led by men to have sufficient public credibility. According to political science professor Jean Theo Harris, who has written a recent award-winning biography of Parks, the defiant seamstress lost more than she gained in the aftermath of her courageous sit-down stand on the bus. Rose's activism got her labeled as a troublemaker among local Montgomery employers, and she and her husband had a difficult time finding steady work after the boycott. Seeking better opportunities elsewhere, the couple moved north to Detroit, Michigan, a city which was home to some of Rose's relatives in 1957. As we explained in Episode 3A, Residential Segregation and Economic Discrimination created major problems for even those blacks who escaped the Jim Crow laws of the South by migrating to urban centers of the North. Theo Harris reports that Parks eventually criticized Detroit as, quote, the promised land that wasn't. She pursued more radical activism during the late 60s and early 70s, including working with the Black Power Movement, a fact which may surprise many Americans, who view Parks as a model of moderate resistance. Ms. Parks capped off her career as a lifelong activist and rebel by working in the office of an African-American congressman, Representative John Conyers of Michigan. Theo Harris argues that, quote, Parks clearly believed that the civil rights struggle was not over. In the 1970s, 80s, and 90s, she continued to press for change in the criminal justice system in school and housing inequality, and in foreign policy, quote. Today, scholars and social critics appreciate the historic significance of Rosa Parks, Martin Luther King, and the Montgomery bus boycott. However, the contemporary news media did not treat the struggle in Alabama as the top political event of the year 1956. That honor went to the same melodrama that is generally the top U.S. news event once every four years, a U.S. presidential election. The 56 election proved, with the benefit of historical hindsight, to be one of the least surprising and interesting electoral results of the 20th century. Ignoring the definition of insanity, the Democrats once again nominated their 1952 candidate, former Illinois Governor Adlai Stevenson. His erudition endeared him to parts of the Democratic base, but Stevenson was still regarded as an uncharismatic egghead by his critics. Stevenson once again placated the powerful Southern faction of the Democratic Party by picking a running mate from the other side of the Mason-Dixon line. However, at least this time, he selected a partner less objectionable to Northern liberals than his 52 Veep choice of Alabama segregationist John Sparkman had been. In 1956, Stevenson chose Senator Estes Kefauver of Tennessee as the vice presidential nominee on the Democratic ticket. Kefauver had gained fame as a prominent crusader against organized crime and had established himself as a racial moderate who had been one of the few Southern senators who refused to sign the Southern Manifesto. In November 56, President Dwight Eisenhower easily secured re-election due to the strength of a booming economy and his perceived success in stabilizing U.S. foreign relations. Patterson notes that Ike's 1956 margin of victory quote, was almost 3 million votes greater than the margin of his first victory over Stevenson back in 1952. Furthermore, in the all-important Electoral College, the Republican incumbent prevailed in 41 states, while his Democratic challenger won only seven states, most of them in the Deep South. Thanks in part to the Warren Supreme Court upholding civil rights and promoting more racial integration, Ike won a greater percentage of the black vote in 1956 than any post-New Deal Republican presidential candidate, either before or since. However, the American people seemed to be more enthusiastic about Dwight Eisenhower as a specific individual politician than they were about the Republican Party in general during 56. The Democrats actually picked up a seat in both the House and the Senate. Patterson finds that this, quote, was the first time since 1848 that an American presidential candidate had won without carrying either House of Congress with him, close quote. Despite his victory in the reelection campaign, the year 1956 would produce significant foreign challenges for President Eisenhower. During the 50s, Nikita Khrushchev, a reform-minded critic of Stalinism, had emerged as the new leader of the Soviet Union. For details, see episode 8a. However, while Khrushchev practiced a less severe version of communist authoritarianism at home, he was unwilling to allow the Eastern European satellite states any real political independence from the USSR. This reality became clear when an anti-Soviet rebellion emerged in Hungary during 1956. Crowds of protesters issued demands for reforms to the Soviet-aligned Hungarian communist government. The revolt escalated, at times spilling into vandalism and violence rioters tore down a 30-foot-tall statue of recently deceased Soviet dictator Joseph Stalin in central Budapest. The participants had been emboldened by Khrushchev's promises of liberalizing reforms to communism. They hoped the Kremlin would tolerate more dissent within the Eastern Bloc now that Stalin was out of the picture. However, once violent skirmishes between state security forces and anti-government rebels were spreading throughout Hungary, the new Soviet leader instead decided to take a hard line and crush the Hungarian insurgency in order to keep the communist bloc unified. According to U.S. diplomatic historian George Herring, Khrushchev quote, used an estimated 200,000 troops and more than 1,000 tanks to suppress the rebellion. The streets of Budapest ran red with blood for days in a crackdown that killed thousands of rebels. The communists subsequently executed hundreds of Hungarian dissident leaders. In his willingness to use massive state violence to uphold the Iron Curtain, it appeared that Khrushchev wasn't so dramatically different from Stalin after all. Events in Budapest created a dilemma for parties on both sides of the Cold War around the world people with left-wing convictions were divided. Patterson notes that the brutal suppression of the Hungarian rebellion by Khrushchev's USSR, quote, shocked the world and badly soiled the image of communism, close quote. In North America and Western Europe, thousands of leftists finally made a formal break with Kremlin-led communist parties over the incident. After all, Marxism was supposed to embody the rebellious will of the common people, and if the masses had to be forced at gunpoint to remain communist, the Eastern Bloc had lost both its ideological coherence and its moral credibility. On the other hand, a few communists, for example, in the British Trade Union movement, stuck to the pro-Soviet line. They defended Khrushchev's use of Red Army tanks in Hungary as necessary to suppress deviations from party unity. At the time, others on the left gave these defenders of Soviet authoritarianism the derogatory nickname of tankies. The term tanky has recently been revived in 21st century social media discourse to describe people who, out of either ideological extremism or so-called edgy trolling, defend even the most odious historical actions of 20th century communist regimes in the Soviet Union and the People's Republic of China. In 1956, the Soviet crackdown in Budapest also caused soul-searching on the part of American anti-communists. Policymakers realized that American propaganda messages broadcast over radio-free Europe had openly encouraged Eastern Europeans to rebel against communism and had even hinted that the United States might assist dissidents if they attempted regime change. In reality, the USA was not about to risk World War III with Soviet Russia in an attempt to liberate a small Eastern European country from life behind the Iron Curtain. Patterson notes that, quote, Military reality in Eastern Europe, which was occupied by the powerful Soviet Red Army, meant that liberation was a sham, close quote the conventional armed forces of the Soviets significantly outnumbered NATO troops stationed on continental Europe. As a result, any attempted American intervention would fail and could also provoke a nuclear exchange between the superpowers. Eisenhower bluntly noted that Hungary was, quote, as inaccessible as Tibet to U.S. forces. In response to the failed Hungarian rebellion, Herring writes that the American government under Eisenhower made, quote, basic changes in U.S. propaganda toward Eastern Europe. Henceforth, the administration shied away from actively encouraging re- revolt in favor of more subtle forms of subversion through trade, travel, and culture, close quote. The bloodshed in Budapest was tragic, but it was not the most frustrating foreign policy challenge faced by President Eisenhower in 1956. That distinction would be earned by an emerging crisis in the Middle East, where George Herring explains in his book From Colony to Superpower that, quote, revolutionary nationalists sought to exploit the Cold War to their advantage, close quote. Most prominent among these nationalist leaders was Gamal Abdel Nasser, the charismatic Egyptian military officer whom we met back in episode 4a. Nasser led a successful revolution in 1952 that overthrew a corrupt Western-aligned monarch and replaced his rule with a more militant nationalist regime. Herring describes Nasser as, quote, a master conspirator, compelling speaker, and fiery nationalist with ambitions for regional leadership and glory, close quote. He was determined to vanquish the remnants of British colonialism in North Africa, In order to counter an emerging alliance between the British Empire and other Middle Eastern nations, Egypt made a massive arms deal with communist Czechoslovakia. This development concerned the Americans, the British, and other members of the capitalist bloc, who feared that Egypt, the most populous nation in the Arab world, might become an outpost of Soviet-oriented socialism. However, Gamal Abdel Nasser wasn't about to become a stooge of the Soviet Union or any other foreign power. The Egyptian regime was among the most successful practitioners of an ideological stance among third world nations known as non-alignment or neutralism. Instead of succumbing to the pressure to choose a side in the Cold War, non-aligned nations played the superpowers off of each other, forcing them to compete with one another for the neutral nation's allegiance and cooperation. In 1956, Nasser's diplomatic maneuvers would have the strange effect of uniting the Americans and the Soviets in opposition to a plot by two dying empires and a brand new state. During the 50s, the Eisenhower administration had been attempting to stabilize relations between the Arab countries and the infant nation of Israel, but to little avail. Nasser and other Arab leaders would not recognize Israel's right to exist insisting that the entire Palestine region be returned to Arab control. Herring notes that, quote, "...to balance Soviet military aid to Egypt and to appease domestic lobbyists, Eisenhower, in the spring of '56, approved a major arms deal for Israel." However, the U.S. administration was still hesitant to be seen as taking sides in the Arab-Israeli conflict. It feared losing diplomatic influence with Arab nations, given the Middle East's strategically important geographic location and its rich petroleum reserves. The Americans reached out to Egypt's government because Nasser was more than happy to broker deals with both Cold War camps. Herring suggests that Ike tried to win Egypt's favor with promises of $400 million to assist with Nasser's pet project, a massive dam at Aswan on the Nile River, to produce hydroelectric power, control flooding, and promote Egyptian agriculture through irrigation, close quote. However, eventually Nasser threatened to seek additional aid from the Soviets for the Aswan Dam, and he also opened up diplomatic relations with the People's Republic of China. The USA retaliated against Egypt for these perceived slights by pulling its support and funding for the Aswan Dam project. Biographer Jean Edward Smith argues that, quote, cancellation of the Aswan Dam was the greatest diplomatic debacle of the Eisenhower era, close quote. This is because Nasser responded to the Americans' disruption of funding for the project by resorting to a provocative Plan B that would provide him with the economic leverage he needed to build his dam, a gambit that U.S. officials did not see coming. In July 1956, Herring reports that, quote, Nasser stunned the world by nationalizing the British-run corporation that managed the Suez Canal, rationalizing that he needed the tolls he could collect from ships passing through the canal to pay for his Aswan project. Quote. The Suez Canal was, and still is, the waterway that separates the Egyptian mainland in the northeast corner of Africa from the Sinai Peninsula connecting Africa from West Asia. The British Empire built the canal back in the 19th century in order to provide its ships with a naval passage between the Mediterranean Sea and the Red Sea. The canal allowed the British to get from Europe to India and their other imperial colonies in Asia without having to make the lengthy voyage clear around the southern tip of Africa. The commercial and strategic motivations involved in creating the Suez Canal were similar to those that prompted the United States to construct the Panama Canal in Central America during the early 20th century. Even amid the decolonization movement taking place in the aftermath of World War II, the British still considered the Suez Canal their rightful property and as a key resource for their dwindling empire. The British Prime Minister, Anthony Eden, was outraged by Nasser's seizure of the canal. Quote, The Egyptian has his thumb on a windpipe, Eden declared. In what proved to be a complex, multinational arrangement, the British joined up with the French, who feared Nasser's potential threat to their North African colonies, such as Algeria, and the Israelis, who were angered by Egypt's threatening rhetoric toward the Jewish state. This unlikely Franco-Anglo-Israeli trio formulated a secret military plan that called for Israel's ground troops to attack Egypt across the Sinai Desert and then In exchange for help from British and French air support, they would recapture the Suez Canal for the benefit of the Europeans. According to U.S. historian John Lewis Gaddis, the British hoped, to depose Nasser altogether. In October 1956, the joint military efforts of Britain, France, and Israel resulted in a successful offensive into Egyptian territory, and Allied forces seized the Sinai Peninsula and the Suez Canal. It seemed that the coalition against Egypt had successfully executed its plan. However, Nasser then stymied access through the canal waterway via a blockade, leading to a standoff. At this point, the superpowers moved to step in and resolve the conflict before it escalated any further. The invasion of Egypt proved just as shocking to the Americans as Nasser's seizure of the canal had been. Despite its initial success, Professor Gaddis depicts the multinational Suez-Sinai invasion as, quote, an ill-conceived, badly-timed, and incompetently managed effort that almost broke up the NATO alliance, close quote. Eisenhower was furious that the British, French, and Israeli coalition had invaded a strategically vital portion of Egypt's territory without U.S. approval, thereby destabilizing the Middle East on the eve of a presidential election. The U.S. administration had grown suspicious of Nasser's intentions after his flirtations with communist powers, and it had disapproved of his seizure of the canal. But the Americans also thought that their European allies had overreacted. They worried that this latest European military involvement in Africa appeared to many people in the global south as a rearguard defense of British colonial possessions, one that could turn third world nations against the western powers and toward the communist bloc. Smith recalls that Eisenhower told the Joint Chiefs that, quote, Nasser embodies the emotional demands of the people of the area for independence and for slapping the white man down, and opposing him could array the world from Dakar and West Africa clear over to the Philippine Islands against us. Close quote. During the 1950s, the USA did not yet have a close alliance with Israel. Hence, the Israeli government also bore the brunt of American anger over their provision of the shock troops for the British conceived operation. Herring writes that, quote, the U.S. threatened sanctions against Israel, and it refused to bolster British currency reserves and oil supplies, permitting the value of the British currency to plummet. Close quote. According to Smith, U.S. actions destabilizing the British economy did not cause the British public to embrace anti-American sentiment. Instead, the popular press in the UK blamed Prime Minister Eden, severely criticizing his military intervention in Egypt. Strangely enough, both of the opposing Cold War superpowers found themselves on the same side of this issue. Americans and Soviets both disapproved of the multinational attack on Egypt that threatened to destabilize the entire Middle East. Herring writes that in his outrage over the, quote, Anglo-French military action in North Africa, Soviet Premier Khrushchev threatened, in what was largely a bluff, to unleash rockets against London and Paris, close quote. Eisenhower took a more subtle approach in his attempt to reduce international tensions. He directed U.S. diplomats to pressure the parties toward peace at the United Nations. Smith writes that the Americans, quote, introduced a motion in the UN Security Council calling for an immediate ceasefire and the withdrawal of Israeli forces from Egypt. Close quote. This effort failed because of French and British Security Council vetoes. So Ike instructed Secretary of State John Foster Dulles to bring the matter before the UN's General Assembly. Smith reports that on November 1, 1956, Dulles called Eisenhower from UN headquarters in New York City and informed him that, quote, The General Assembly had approved the US sponsored ceasefire resolution, 64 to 5, with only Australia and New Zealand joining Britain, France, and Israel voting against it. Close quote. Thus, the international community demanded peace. The Soviets were still saber rattling at the Western European powers, and the Americans had cut off shipments of oil to the British and French. They had little choice but to give in to the overwhelming pressure brought by the superpowers. Herring suggests that they did so, quote, in part from Soviet threats, but mainly because U.S. pressures worsened an already serious economic situation, leaving them no choice, close quote. The British and French withdrew from Egypt, followed by the Israelis. The Soviets backed down from their nuclear threats, and the Americans reopened the oil trade with Western Europe. The international crisis had passed, and the Egyptians have remained custodians of the Suez Canal ever since. The Suez-Sinai conflict had destabilized the Middle East and damaged relations between key members of the NATO alliance. Patterson contends that, quote, the British and the French were the biggest losers by far. Having embarked on a foolish military mission, they had been isolated and forced to withdraw, they never again regained their standing in the Middle East. Close quote. The political backlash from the Suez fiasco forced Anthony Eden to step down as British Prime Minister. According to Smith, quote, In Israel, the war was viewed as a success. The Jewish state had demonstrated its military prowess and henceforth would be a power to be reckoned with. Close quote. Herring argues that the trouble in the Suez helped provoke a more confrontational Cold War posture from the Soviet Union, because, quote, Khrushchev mistakenly concluded that his rocket-rattling had carried the day, thus emboldening him to further and even more reckless nuclear gambits, close quote. In Gaddis's judgment, the real winner of the Suez crisis was Nasser, who, quote, kept the canal, humiliated the colonialists, and balance Cold War superpowers against one another while securing his position as the undisputed leader of Arab nationalism. Close quote. However, Patterson argues that Nasser's gambit had more mixed results given that the Egyptian military had been humiliated when the Israelis had temporarily captured the Sinai Peninsula from them. Herring reports that the United States responded to Nasser's growing prominence and assertiveness by bolstering, quote, conservative pro-Western governments in the Middle Eastern region with economic and military assistance, while toughening its stance toward more radical pan-Arabist nationalist governments. With British and French influence on the wane, the USA became the chief regional guardian of capitalist Western oil interests in the East. Politically conservative Iran, with its Western-backed monarchy led by the Shah, remained an important American ally. Relations between the United States and Saudi Arabia also grew closer, a strategic shift that had long-term consequences for the geopolitical evolution of the modern Middle East. The events of 1956 challenged the relatively stable post-war international status quo between the Cold War superpowers, demonstrating both the remaining resistance to Soviet dominance within Eastern Europe and the internal tensions between the capitalist powers within NATO. The continued military tensions that plagued the biblical promised land of the Middle East demonstrated the danger that the superpowers might be dragged into proxy conflicts within that volatile region. However, the Americans did not anticipate that the next unsettling Soviet advance would not involve disputes over land or weapons of war, but rather would come from way up in the stratosphere, the Cold War was about to extend beyond terrestrial Earth and make the leap into outer space in the year 1957. From Boomers to Millennials podcast is co-produced by Aaron Rodgers and Logan Rogers. Just me this time, though. Logo designed by Kami Schaefer and Aaron Rogers, written and narrated by Logan Rogers. Please subscribe to our show and leave a favorable review if you enjoy it. You can also donate to our Patreon at patreon.com boomer to millennial. Check out the episode 11 source list on our Patreon page for information about the research behind this program. You can also follow us on Instagram at Boomers to Millennials and on Twitter at Boomer underscore two. If you have comments or suggestions about our podcast, please email us at boomer m-i-l-l-e-n-n-i-a-l at outlook.com. As always, stay safe, stay grounded, and thank you for listening.